Psalm 51, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my saviour. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Thank you again for the, for the welcome and thank you for the privilege of, of opening God's word to us uh, this morning in our worship. Somebody asked me uh, on the way in, they said, oh, who's... Um, who's preaching in, in uh, Salisbury Baptist Church this morning. And I mentioned it was one uh, of the uh, folks from the church who's covering uh, for me to be here this morning. I've got a small group of people in the church who are a, a preaching team. And uh, every so often we get together to uh, just spend some time in prayer together, to talk together and to learn together. And uh, in one of those sessions... Uh, I was leading through some uh, thoughts in terms of, of preaching, and one of the things I said was, when we come to the Word of God, when we come to the passage that has either been given to us or we feel God has given to us, uh, it needs to affect the preacher first uh, before you deliver it to the congregation. If it doesn't affect you, it's not likely to affect those who are listening to you. Uh, God has a way of doing that for me. Uh, often I, I, in my patterns of preparation, I'll tend to sort of work on a Monday and think about things on a Monday and then let it dwell with me on a Tuesday and a, usually Thursday when I'm sitting down and I'm 
putting things together. And I sometimes say to the folks in church in, in SBC, I say, sometimes I feel like ringing you up on a Thursday and saying, let's meet now because I'm sort of ready to go. Do you know what I mean? You know, God's sort of like done something and moved in my heart and my spirit and I'm ready to go and I have to wait till Sunday to, to, to deliver. But uh, God reinforced that the message of this psalm to me uh, in a way that I wasn't greatly blessed with yesterday. I was supposed to be going with a, a friend. We have an annual uh, trip. He's a huge football fan. I, I'm more a rugby man, but he's a f huge football fan. And uh, every year, he, uh, he, he asked me to go and to watch uh, a game in Newport. I grew up in Newport. Uh, to go and watch Newport County play, which is never much of a pleasure because they're useless. Uh, but we, we, go to, we go to Newport and we watch a game together. And so we were planning to go yesterday. So we were literally sitting in the car ready to go. And I said to him, you know, because the weather wasn't fantastic, I said, I'll just check the, the roads uh, to see whether there's any holdups, uh, you know, to get to Newport. So I just checked that. And he turned to me and he said, well, you just check that the game's on. And I looked and I, oh, called off, frozen pitch. <laughs> So, so we didn't go. So I said to him, I said, oh, well, hang around, stay, we'll, uh, we'll go out for lunch. So um, when jumped in the car with us, and uh, we, we, drove, we were driving to Downton to pop the cafe there to have something for lunch with his friend. Uh, when, as I'm driving along the road, just uh, as I'm about to get about halfway to Downton, uh, I see flashing lights behind me, uh, unmarked police car. And uh, so I pull over thinking he must have got an emergency and he's off somewhere. And he draws up alongside me and says, can you pull over? So I, I pull over and sort of get out of the car and he gets out of the car and he says to me, he says, uh, do you realize what speed you were doing? And I went, no idea. Absolutely no idea. He shows me the speed gun and I was well over the, the speed limit as he told me it was. And uh, so he gave me a ticket. So I thought, I was there and I was thinking, oh, fantastic. You know, I was thinking of all the reasons why he shouldn't have given me a ticket. You know, one, I shouldn't have been going to Downton. I should have been going to Newport to watch the game, but it was off. Two, I was in the car with his friend, so I was talking, so I wasn't really paying attention to the fact of, you know, what I was doing on terms of the, the road. I was just driving and wasn't paying that much attention to the speed I was doing. Anyway, that bit of the road that you immediately go from 30 miles an hour to 50 miles an hour. There's no sort of 40 and 50. So, you know, give me a break. You know, I was almost into the 50, you know. And then anyway, I was following the traffic in front of me. And the traffic in front of me was going the same speed as I was. So why would he pick on me? Why would he pick on me? I was making all these excuses in my mind. I didn't actually tell you that to the police officer, but... I was making all these excuses in my mind as to why would I end up getting a speeding ticket. And as I sort of came back Saturday night and looked at this psalm again, it reminded me. And I sort of said to the Lord, well, thank you for that very obvious way that you're applying this psalm to my heart and to my life. Because when it comes to this issue of sin, we are those who will find our excuses. And yet we need to come to that place where we just put our hands up and say, yes, I did it. As I said to the policeman, if you clocked it at that, yes, that's what I was doing. I'm glad that you're in the Psalms. I, uh, we've got a slide for you. If I, I, in the last couple of years, I've gone back to um, 
in my devotions, looking through the Psalms. And these two books have been really helpful for me. I don't know whether you've come across them. Tim Keller's uh, My Rock and My Refuge and takes, us, takes you through the Psalms. And then this one I did last year, uh, Ian Stackhouse's Praying the Psalms. And uh, I gather you're in a series in the Psalms here and uh, maybe you want to have a look at either of those. I found them both uh, really helpful. And I'm really glad that Frank was reading for us as we come to this psalm, uh, that he read the title that, that we so often don't read because it's just there for us. Uh, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba because it's important that we read the psalm in the context of how David wrote it. Uh, the, the psalm, of course, refers to that incident in David's life uh, that we have recorded for us in 2 Samuel uh, 11 and, and verse, uh, chapters 11 and, verse, and chapter 12, where David commits adultery, and then to hide that adultery commits murder, or has, has certainly uh, Uriah killed in battle. And Nathan the prophet comes and confronts the king of his sin. Interesting in my experience with the police officer yesterday, it was really interesting in watching his body language uh, as he came to give me this ticket. Uh, and I think he was quite surprised that I didn't start making my excuses or I didn't start ranting and raving at him. It was interesting. I think that was what his expectation was because, you know, I think that's how people often react, don't they, in terms of going, oh, well, why me? And so on and so on. And, oh, I didn't do that or I wasn't doing this. So what about all those people who were driving past that breaking the speed limit as he's booking me, you know? Uh, and he, Nathan the prophet, he bravely goes to the king and confronts the king with his sin. He speaks truth to power. And it's important that we have that in the context of this psalm as we get into it. It's one of the, the seven uh, penitential psalms that we have in the 150 that are recorded for us in Scripture. Uh, and it is, as I've been in those devotions over these last couple of years, I love the honesty of the psalmist. Uh, and here David, uh, now having been confronted with his sin, speaks truth not to power, but he speaks truth to the Almighty. He speaks truth to God. And there in verses 1 to 2, as so often in the Psalms, he reminds God of his character. And he says, God, you are a merciful God. You are love is unfailing. You have great compassion. And he says, all of those characteristics trump my transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. And we sometimes think, well, why, why does the psalmist so often do this? Why does the psalmist so often bring and record the character of God? I mean, God doesn't need reminding of his attributes. It's not as if God forgets his character or God needs his ego sort of massage that we say to him, you are this, you are that, you are the other. But the psalmist, David, here reminds God of his character. Because David recognizes it is on the basis of God's character that he can indeed come to him with the faith and trust that God is able to make a difference to what David is going through. For those of us who can cast your minds back uh, some, some years to uh, the end of apartheid in South Africa, uh, President Nelson Mandela and uh, Bishop Tutu came together 
recognizing the challenges that were to face what they, they called the Rainbow Nation. And one of the things that they decided together that would help the nation in coming through that terrible chapter in its history of apartheid was to set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And that Truth and Sec Reconciliation Commission was that if anyone came and truthfully told what they had done during that time of apartheid, confessed what they had done in the horrors of what happened during that period in South Africa's history, that they would then not be convicted of the crime that they had committed. But they had to bring the whole truth. And in his wonderful book, uh, Yancey's Ama Amazing Grace, he records this story from that Truth and Reconciliation Commission. On hearing in a particularly captured my attention while reading of the work of the commission, a police officer named Vanderbrook recounted an incident when he and other officers shot an 18-year-old boy and burned the body in order to destroy the evidence of the crime. Eight years later, Vanderbrook returned to the same house and seized the, the boy's father. The wife was forced to watch as the officers bound her husband on a woodpile, poured gasoline over his body and ignited it. The courtroom stood on pins and needles and grew silent as an elderly woman who had lost first her son and then her husband was given a chance to respond. What do you want from Mr. Vanderbrook, the judge asked. She said she wanted Vanderbrook to go to the place where they had burned her husband's body, gather up the dust so that she could give him a decent burial. With this, his head down, the officer nodded in agreement. And then she added a further request. Mr. Vanderbrook took all of my family away from me and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I'd like him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can be a mother to him. And I would like Mr. Vanderbrook to know that he is forgiven by God and I forgive him too. I'd like to embrace him so that he can know my forgiveness is real. Spontaneously, some in the courtroom began to sing Amazing Grace. The elderly woman made her way to the witness stand. Vanderbrook did not hear the hymn, for he had fainted. Here we see the reality in that lady's experience of her having known the forgiveness of God as we would understand it, is able to offer forgiveness even to that man who had done such terrible things to her family. And here... David knows that on the basis of the character of God, despite the terrible things he has done, he can come before him and he can seek his face. And so there in verses 3 and 6 of the psalm, we see that requirement of that confession. Confession is good for the soul. So the saying goes, Sin, we are told, was always before David. It haunted him. And as he comes, how can he say that his sin is against God and God only? 
Think about what he'd done to Bathsheba. Think of what he'd done to Uriah, her husband, the consequences for that baby born of adultery, what the consequences were for his rule and for the nation. And yet he comes and declares that his sin is towards God and God only. It's Tim Keller who says in that book I mentioned, every sin is cosmic treason. It's overthrowing the rule of the one whom we owe everything. First and foremost, when we sin, we sin against God. Because in that sin, we are declaring that we are indeed God. We're saying we know better. We know better how to live our lives and how to conduct ourselves. And here, David comes, having cited the character of God, confessing his sin before him. No excuses. No sorry buts. Reminder to me as I stood before that policeman yesterday. Perhaps a reminder too to those that we see in the public eye who seem to struggle to come and just to say, I'm sorry. For those who followed the, the story of Jeremy Clarkson and his terrible comments in the newspaper, firstly, he tried to make his excuses. He tried to justify what he'd said till finally he realized with the wave of public um, against him that he had to do something else. And finally, he put out that he'd made an apology to those that he'd hurt by the words that he'd written. It seemed to go hollow, didn't it? Because one, it was a long time after the incident. And two, it had been full before of, oh, well, yeah, I'm sorry, but these are the reasons why. And they didn't quite understand why I'd written what I'd written. We're always those, don't we, when we sin, who think there's an excuse for our actions. As we think back to the very beginning when sin entered into the world, as we read it in Genesis 3, and there when God confronts Adam with his sin, what does Adam do? makes his excuses. But it was Eve who tempted me to sin. And when God confronts Eve, Eve says it was the serpent who tempted me to sin. So someone has cleverly said, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> but we do, we make our excuses. And yet in those verses in that part of the psalm, God says of us that he has planted within us that possibility for us to know truth and to be wise. But we fail to do it. We fail to follow that truth that God requires of us, to be wise in our actions, in following the path that he's declared for us. And there comes those points in our lives where we need to admit it full stop. Stop making the excuses. So he goes on in verses 7 to 12 to, to find after that confession a renewal of possibility. Talks there of being cleansed, of being healed, of being purified, of being renewed, of maintaining a relationship with God, of restoration and a sustaining of that relationship 
being made possible. He asks of God that God would hide his face from David's sin. I'm really struck with the phrase that David uses that we have translated there for us into English. That God would hide his face from his sin. I have somebody who's with us in, in SBC and his story is one of, of alcohol and drug abuse. And he's a recovering alcoholic and drug addict, doing well. And when I first met him, he told me a story. A story of how God had rescued him. And brought him to that place where he realized that he no longer needed to be dependent on these things. But there was a way through that he continues to battle with God in and through. But he told me, he said, I became so dependent on the alcohol and the drugs that it changed my appearance. And he said, one of the best things that had happened to him since he, he, he stopped drinking and taking drugs is after about six months, he went to see his mum. Their difficult relationship because of what he'd done it meant there'd been a fracture in that relationship. But he'd managed to find some sense of restoration. And he said to me, one of the great things that happened for me, he said, was the last time I visited my mum, he said she took a photograph of me. And he knew as he was telling me the story, he couldn't understand what he was saying. And he said, well, I've got a brother and sister. And when I go to my mum's house, there are pictures up of my brother and sister. But there's no pictures up of me. He said, I looked so terrible. My mum didn't want pictures up of me. But now, because I've, I'm off the drugs and off the drink, and I'm looking so much more healthy, she took a photograph of me. And, and, and he said, now she's got a picture up in the house of me. And here, in that sense, David is saying to God, God, put a picture up of me. Not a picture of me as, as that sinful one, but a picture of me as you have made me right, as you have renewed me. And made me clean. Turn your face towards me. Look at me again. Because you have done what no other could do for me. And then in verses 13 to 15, David says in that process of confessing his sins after declaring the character of God, of knowing that renewing of God's spirit in his heart and in his life, he knows that there needs now to be a different response. A response to those that he sees who are also on that path of sin to help them. And also to be in that place where he praises God. You'll know the story of the man who finds himself as he's walking down the road. He falls into a hole. And he's stuck in the hole. And the hole is so steep that he can't get out. And, and he sees a, 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 a priest walking past. And he shouts up to the priest. And he says to him, I'm stuck in the hole. Help me out. And the priest looks down into the hole. And he disappears for a moment. And then he comes and he writes a prayer. And he throws it in the hole and says, pray that. And the man is still stuck in the hole. But then he sees a doctor walk past. And so he shouts up the doctor. He says, doctor, I'm stuck in this hole. Help me. And the doctor writes him a prescription and throws it in the hole. 
and the man's still in the hall. And then he sees a, a psychologist walking past, and he shouts up the psychologist, I'm in this hall, help me, help me to get out. And the psychologist said to him, you need to consider the hall <laughs> and see how it will help you. And the man's stuck in the hall when eventually a friend walks by, and he shouts to his friend, I'm stuck in the hall, help me out. And the friend jumps into the hall with him. And the man says to his friend, you idiot, what are you doing? I asked you to help me out of the hole. And the man says, I've been in the hole myself. And I know the way out. And here in, in the psalm, David is said, because of what I've experienced, now I know that I have to help those who are in the hole find their way out as well. Galatians 6 and verse 1 says this, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. wonder if that's true of your church and of my church. That when we come across those who have sinned, that's our heart and our attitude towards them because we put our hands up and say, we know where you've been. And we've been on that journey together. Let's do it again and walk to where God would want us to be. And then in verses 16 and 17, tells us of the redemption of the right way round. David recognizes that it's not the outward that needs to change first, but it's the inward. It's the heart that needs to be transformed for the outward actions to show that inward transformation. It reminds us, doesn't it, of the story of the prodigal son that Luke records in chapter 15. And the words of that story so much echo this psalm uh, as the, the young man who's done so much damage to his relationship with his father and to himself comes back in this terrible state, emaciated and filthy from serving the pigs and walking that dusty journey back home and has those words in his heart and in his mind, Father, I have come to you and I've sinned against heaven and against you. Just make me your servant because I no longer deserve to be your son. We have that wonderful picture of the father as, as Charlie uh, Macassie's uh, sculpture shows of the father who, while the son was yet afar away, sees him and runs to him, embraces him, and before he can almost get the words out, says to them, come and bring the cloak and put it on him and shoes on him and let's throw a party. Because this son who was dead is now made alive again to me. So we see the wonder of that grace-laced redemption in that tremendous story. Here again, the psalmist reflects that redemptive work of God, that inner work that then transforms our outer. And then in the final verses, uh, of the psalm. As so often, the commentators argue a little bit about where, where these verses come from. Were they originally part of David's psalm or are they an addition uh, that comes from the, the, the people of God who were in exile and reflecting that? Well, maybe they are, but what is being said at the end of that psalm is something that is personal. It, it's, it's applying the psalm, applying the word of God to the, to the person's experience uh, where they are. Saying, in your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. 
which is where they get the concept of possibly being this is an addition from the exiles when the walls were destroyed. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. That again, the, the sacrificial system of the temple would be reestablished amongst the people of God. It's uh, Ian Stackhouse who says, Holiness is not the ability to pretend a perfect life, but rather the willingness to see the residual darkness in our hearts, to bring it before God, and then experience the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit. Holiness is not the ability to pretend a perfect life, life but rather the willingness to face the residual darkness in our hearts, to bring it before God, and then experience the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit. Before we sing and come before God in worship, I want to read this psalm to us again. And as I, as I read it, I want, as we hear these words, for us to put ourselves into the place of the psalm. To be in that place where we personalize this psalm. That we come and we say, this is my experience. Lord, take me to where you took David. Maybe you, as we hear the words, are already thinking of those things that we haven't done or we should have done. Those things where we could make this and put our name in the psalm. But remember the God that we come to and what he's able to do for us. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you approve right when you speak. And justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the innermost parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and block out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. Or take your Holy Spirit from me.
Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressions, transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Maybe Psalm 51 was for David and for me. But maybe you're honest enough to admit it was for you as well. But we remember the faithfulness and amazing grace of our God. That when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us sins. Let's stand and let's worship the Lord together, our holy God who loves us and forgives us. <laughs>